Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Enjoy. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Yes, the Talent Tank in session. As you clicked on today's episode, you see we have none other than Mr. Tom Ways. Tom, how are you? Super fired up to be here, Why? And I just want to clarify for everyone listening in, just because you can't see the video of this and this guy looking back at me, this is just Tom. This is no mustache. This is just Tom. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. You know, I've known you for greater than 10 years, greater than a decade. Always a good guy to talk to. Always a good guy to wheel with. Always a great guy to wheel with, race with, all the above, have beers with, all around good guy. Name is always in the podium discussion how do you do it <laughs> where do you want to start what <laughs> no no we, we have a lot of time to get into that right off the bat though last week well the episode just before this we had a, a famous fellow you know the winningest co-driver in ultra four history a fellow goes by the name of mr jason Berger or crossfit sally he alluded to a story about the famous tom ways he uh he dropped a nice little easter egg for us i i know the story actually but i never actually heard it from the lips of babes here i've <laughs> i've i've heard it from uh kurt schneider he, he he wrote it up at one point but i'd like to hear the exact story of i mean folks this man that you're listening to and you're going to get the full story on for the next two two hours or so he killed a bear in no, his living room. I didn't, kill it. I didn't kill it. I gave him a headache. The urban legend or the. Let's just start out with good, <laughs> true data. That's why we've got you on because we're going to set the, <laughs> set the record straight. No, we got to set this shit straight. So you, you were prepping your car. This was the, this was the tribe single seat car in your no. basement uh-uh. at Tahoe. No, it, was the old, it was the old girl. Oh, it was your, uh, Trent Fab bright yes, orange three, two, one. Leverett sponsored Leverett transmission sponsored down the side. Exactly. I remember vividly respond. It was a good, that was a great trail car. I want to know more about it here in a little bit, but I can't wait to say about Leverett. Got to tell you about Leverett and thank you for bringing up John Leverett. That guy was an absolute incredible. He, he's a legend. And then did he pass away a few years ago? Yes, sir. He did. That's sorry yeah. to hear. I, I, I remember hearing that or thinking I'd heard that. So you were, you were working on that car. Was this being prepped for, for KOH? No, for Glen Helen, actually, I just, uh, I had just come home in the spring and, and I basically, it was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was, I think we had that afternoon race that year where we shared, shared race, the racetrack with another series or something like that. And it was like an afternoon into an evening race and, uh, it was just super overwatered. Anyway, back to the point of story. Yeah, I was out in the garage and I was changing springs because I was trying to lower the car and take the spare off and lighten it up. And Joe Magliano, who uh, <laughs> I've known forever, him and his girlfriend came over and they were on their way to a barbecue. This was in Tahoe City. And, you know, at that time, like the black bear population, you know, really active. 
you know, third, fourth generation trash bears that are smart. And like, literally it was so bad. People were getting their cars broken into interiors ripped out. I mean, like I had a not very old garage three car with a studio above it that we just got done building and, you know, constantly ripping off the double pane, beautiful wood windows and breaking in ransacking the place. And literally, uh, Joe came and was helping me finish up and Oh, I think exactly how it went. So, uh, the front door is wide open. I think it was June at the time, May or June and, uh, normal Saturday in Lake Tahoe, just beautiful out and front doors wide open. And Joe was like, Hey man, I need to take off and, uh, get some hand, hand cleaner, wash my hands and go over to this barbecue. And I was like, yeah, thanks for the help. You know, we got both just basically we're changing the lower spring rates on the, on the primaries. Right. Just trying to drop it two inches. And basically Joe goes walking up the stairs behind me. We're walking in the front door and I hear him go, Holy shit, that's not a dog. And, uh, I went like this and I was like, ah, oh, shit. And I freaking looked in, in the brand new stainless fridge. And we just got done a kitchen, a kitchen remodel. And, uh, the brand new fridge was open. The freezer was open. And I just look over and I see this black blur. And I was like, right in my office. And, uh, next to the office was the guest bathroom and the guest bedroom. And uh, I went in my office and I had just come home from Alaska and I had TSA. I took two pistols up there. Usually late in the season when the bears are active, I usually carry a pistol for, you know, protection for the brown bears that are out in the spring. On, on certain years, they're really active and, you know, it's the real deal up there. I mean, three years ago, there was a brown bear mauling in Haynes in our heli train by a Juno professor that was leading trips, trying to climb. We may be getting a little bit ahead uh, because yeah. we haven't told this part of the story about your life. You're a backcountry ski guide, heli ski guide. You guys jump out of helicopters on skis in, and you're mm-hmm. based in uh, Southeast Alaska there in Haines. Yes, and so you yep. do that, do that during the winter, but this is, yep. you've come back Your it's affected the yep. very beginning of the off season and yeah. right, now, right now, you're kind of back because of COVID, but sorry, I know we're talking about Alaska, but I want to make sure yeah, people know, no, like, it, why it, is this guy it, jumping yeah. back and forth from Alaska? Well, it's because you work up there half the year. and Right. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But but to put context to it, there's context to it, right? Yeah. Because I TSA'd my pistols, which means they're unlocked and they're barrel locked and there's a lock on the case. And I got my paperwork with TSA and they're in my gear bag. And, you know, you're paying per pound to get your, your gear up there every year, right? And... uh you know, I basically ran in my office and I looked and I had my, I had a Smith and Wesson 500, one of those snub nose fifties. They're just miserable things to shoot. And, uh, that thing was barrel locked and empty. And then my Springfield 45 was locked and barrel locked and empty. And I was like, that's not good. That's not good. And then I looked at my pistols and I was like, that's, I'm going to go down in history of Lake Tahoe being the guy that got mauled looking for his pistol keys. I'm not going to be that guy. And I grabbed my, my tomahawk. And at that time I was carrying a tomahawk in my guide pack, like all the time, because they just, they were great tools for so many times we're skiing down to sea level with the aircraft because you can on, on years when it snows down low, 3000, 3,500 elevation to sea level is incredible. And <laughs> it's the best skiing in the world. It's, it's incredible. It's like Je- Japan mixed with Russia, just like big pillows and spines. And, and there's these beautiful rock wall couars that there's like nowhere else on the planet. And I've seen like 180 pound black wolf eyeball me on the talking river before, like 
with clients. You're sitting there and you're like scan down and you're like, oh, there's a fresh brown bear track, you know, like you're, you're in the middle of the wilderness and, and it's a really cool experience. But point of story, I didn't have anything loaded. Everything was locked. I grabbed my tomahawk and I came out of my office and was standing between the TV, looking into the living room. In the meantime, the bear ran into the bedroom, jumped off the corner of the couch, off the coffee table and charged me. And I'm standing there and a SOG Fusion is only about 12 or 13, 14 inches long and short. So I waited till he was that close and he wasn't a huge bear. I mean, I, I think he was probably maybe a two year old or something, but he came all the way at me and I waited and I waited, I waited and I finally, I was hunkered down and I waited and I waited and I waited and I hit him right inside the temple. And uh, he went hauling ass out the front door and I chased him like a crazy person, just so pissed off with my brand new kitchen that, oh, that was a little much. And uh, go chase him out, throw the tomahawk, bounce it off him. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's about where that was. And I spent the next two nights on the roof with a bow, but I never got him. And just, I can hear like the clanging of your balls in the middle of that story. <laughs> <laughs> that's the real version the other version i've heard is very very similar but it was something along the lines of that no guns were involved it was the, which you collect tomahawks and the, i do like tomahawks and the story i was told was it was hanging on uh it was hanging on the wall it was like a decorative <laughs> you're you're here to tell it that's crazy well i mean the thing about it, you got to put context to it right because in lake tahoe i mean like I have a friend, he's an airline pilot, and he has so many bears try to break into his house. Like the local sheriff gives him rubber plugs because literally like he can't buy non-lethal ammo. And if you shoot a bear in Lake Tahoe, it's a huge deal. Like there's crazy people up here that will literally like stalk you and think you are the devil. So like literally, you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. So like literally like I heard when I called that day, I called 911 because I was so jacked up. I was like, I just wrestled. I just got into it with a bear, right? Like, I was like, I called 911. I was like, 911? And the lady's like, hello, sir. And I was like, is this a mercy? Well, it was. And she's like, what? And I'm like, not anymore. And she's like, yeah. Um, okay, we're going to transfer you to the sheriff. So the sheriff picks up and they're like, is he still, is, is the bear still in the house? I'm like, no. Is the bear still hurt? I don't think so. But I did hit him pretty hard. What? Well, I hit him in the head with a tomahawk. And she's like, excuse me? <laughs> she's like, you might be the first person since the Washoe Indians that's hit a bear with a tomahawk. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> but in all fairness, like, there was 12 break-ins that day before noon, according to the sheriff. All bears. Bears in houses. Imagine if you're on your back porch, Wyatt, and you're just having a nice barbecue and you're cooking some nice tri-tip. And all of a sudden, a black bear comes walking through the middle of your living room with your daughter in there or something. Yeah, insane. Like, that's the reality up here now. Like, there's so many bears, and they don't care. They'll come up and they'll start pushing on your screen windows. I mean, people are putting nail boards out and electric cattle fence around their houses. A, a bear is a very smart animal, too. They're like a giant raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> a huge trash panda exactly well th thank you for putting that story out there like uh setting the record straight the versions i'd heard i've heard many versions but that one uh from fr fr from the horse's mouth that's a uh, 
That's crazy. I can't even imagine walking into my kitchen to have a bear just stand no, there and be so like, funny. hey, man, what's I up? Sitting there. <laughs> Yo, Shoot, I was sitting there, no shirt, board shorts, and flip-flops chasing a black bear out of the front of my house. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe, the funniest part was Joe comes up and he's like, holy shit, that's not a bear. And he goes, tearing ass, tearing ass out the front door and slams the door shut behind him. So I'm in there with the bear and the door shut. And I hear him from the front yard, do you want me to open the front door? And I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh wow so you're I was so torqued up you're back in tahoe now right no i'm in reno I'm in oh reno. i mean yeah that's right so you're but you're back in the the lower 48 yeah unfortunately well it's the time of year i should be back but yeah just a little early this year with covid and everything and so you guys shut down seba which is southeast alaska backcountry adventures backcountry adventures yes sir yeah. how many yeah. how many helis do you guys have 2020 this year we had uh we got busy and we had three aircraft this year three b2 three b2s from uh, coastal helicopters out of juno those guys are great partners ours and amazing company to work with got some great pilots and uh super stoked to be uh i mean the pilot and the aircraft relationship is a is a huge thing especially in southeast you know where you got big peaks and coastal conditions and ever-changing weather and the thing that's neat about Southeast is it has an ability that the weather clears a little more quickly there. So we get a little more percentage of fly days than I have in other spots in Alaska. And um, the proximity to the coast range with the biggest coastal uh, mountain range in the world, it's kind of a no-brainer to want to be as close to those as possible because you're in a pre precipitation shadow that creates just amazing skiing and some of the best, uh, the, the best skiing in the world. And you brought up the relationship between the, the helis and the, the, the pilot and the skiers and all that stuff, but also you guys take, have a lot of camera guys that roll out with you, right? We've done so much over the years, like production wise, like, um, I've guided Travis Rice you know, when he was working on his Red Bull projects. Um, Richie Perman, who's a personal friend of mine, he's a great dude. Victor Delarue, um, Xavier Delarue, um, and then our own internal own production we do. We, we, you know, I mean, we're we're fortunate to have Will Wisman as one of our owners. And that name sounds familiar, right? He's done some KOH work. Yeah, Wisman, Wisman, the mongoose, the mongoose, the goose is loose. I mean, like that guy's. Um, I, I brought him down to King of the Hammers to uh, to help shoot the aerial crew for for Dave when uh, when KOH was starting, and you can you can recognize some of his original. KOH aerial pictures, you know, when those guys were flying like almost nine or 10 hours actual Hobbs time in the aircraft that day. Yeah, I specifically remember. I mean, I think it's famous. I bet this guy probably has it framed in his study, but it's uh, Lauren Healy. Yeah. Wisman hanging out of the helicopter, catches Lauren yeah. doing a pass, but Lauren just <laughs> mashes a G out. Throws yeah, the car ran for like another two miles at the most. Yeah, yeah maybe. it was glorious. <laughs> it was <laughs> glorious. I mean, it's no, like a you, 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 that dirt flying. He jumped over that guy. Yeah, who was it? He jumped over. I feel like it was maybe. I don't remember who that was, but I mean, honestly, like Wisman was like, yeah, that was cool. Like, like you know, whatever. <laughs> like it was, it was just another day. But the thing that was so revolutionary back then was Wisman was wearing his ski bibs, which was a pair of ski bibs i designed freddie bauer which was cool this is like a side note because i love designing gear and he he put a second camera in between this double zipper so he had a second camera on his chest that he shot on a remote while he was shooting his other camera while he was hanging out the door that year 
I had the filler plate loosen up on my car and it was leaking gas. No, it wasn't a filler plate. It was the rollover valve that had the stupid ball bearing in it. That thing unscrewed and then the plastic washer and all of it fell into the tank. And I remember we were coming out the top of outer limits and Dave looks over at me because it was like a huge traffic jam and he landed the helicopter and jumped out of it and he was standing there spotting people and I had gas just sloshing out of the top of my cell and he was like, Bubba, that's a problem. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm on top of it. Uh, we got some duct tape and we're going to fix it in the pits. <laughs> I'm almost at the pits. I was sticking a rag in there <laughs> and he's like, come on now. So literally it was uh, Ian Plain was my co-driver complained back in the day on the board. And uh, he was my co-driver and we just got done passing Roger and Brad and it took us forever to get by those guys. They were just making dust and we finally get around them on the 29 Palm side and we get the, we thrash, we throw the bag of tools back in the floor and like the hell with it. And we start going back towards the finish. And that was the year that Wisman and Jeff were flying in that black Huey. Yeah. That was Brad from High Performance Heli from Big Bear. And he was chasing us as literally the tool bag and all the tools were lighting on fire in the belly of the car as Dave's in the helicopter with Wisman on like the last stretch down pummel pass into that finish. And literally I hear on the radio, they're like, get the extinguishers ready. He's coming in. And I was like, literally come skating into the finish. And like all of the, all the fire extinguishers and like, literally we were going so hard. We ejected the spare out of it. It was the first time I met Lucas Murphy. He came over and he was just like, dude, I want to hang out with you. <laughs> and I was like, anybody seen my spare tire and wheel? I could really use it. <laughs> right. On. Oh man. Yeah. So you brought down Wisman, you brought down, uh, Engelbritson, Jeff Engelbritson. Yes, He's been on a list of mine. To, anyone that's, crazy enough to hang out at a helo and chase race cars and chase it's somebody i'd like that's an amazing to. person that guy that guy is that guy you need to get on need to get on the talent tank because humility and strength and just performance i mean like that guy just exemplifies everything i mean i cut trees with that guy for 15 years he mentored me and had a had to cut trees and I, I would say honestly between him and i we cut down more hazard trees and cut down more trees and did more crane trees over lakefront houses than anybody in the history of lake tahoe i mean we cut down so much wood huge trees huge trees like i mean him and i together i i can't i can't even count on on so many trees over 180 feet i mean <laughs> that's the thing why like people don't realize like going down to rubicon springs for me was like going down to willy wonka's chocolate chocolate factory because like you get down to rubicon springs and there's all growth trees that are over 200 feet tall it's like there's firs that the tops have fallen out after a beetle kill that are still 180 foot tall like there's 220 footers that 20, 20, 25 feet of bug kill have fallen out of, and they're still huge. They're so huge down there. Eight, nine footers, just massive pickles. And like for years I would go down there and go down there. Cause I was always a land cruiser guy, right? Meeting down with my friend Jack Rice and going in for cruise Moab and going into the Springs, you know? And like, I would, I would bring my 372 with me cause I was always cutting trees. So I'd bring a little bit of saw gas and, you know, my 372 and I, I mean, I, I was dropping 180 footers in the Springs and they, they and you know, the, the, all the old timers there, Steve Morris and all those guys were like, if you work at the Springs, you don't pay to camp at the Springs. So every time I come down there, they were like, Oh, you're back, you're back. Can you take down this one? You know? And like, I didn't up falling some huge old nasty thing. And I remember being at Kentucky. I don't remember which year it was, but it was the like battle of Sturgis or battle of the 
I don't think it was a battle of bluegrass, but it was that Sturgis. You talking the Bills race? You talking? It Bills was Bills race. race. You Bills ran race. into Miller. <laughs> <laughs> you cleaned the corner off Miller's car. <laughs> that did that was- not happen. <laughs> that did not. He you was. That You're like this is mine. <laughs> <laughs> I I was in front of him. Uh, I was uh, positioned in front of him. I moved I all the way. <laughs> he was so mad no no uh but but it was that race we came out of uh whatever the fields and you shot into some trees and on the first day we when we got there i didn't i'd seen your car there but we didn't see you and then you come trotting back up out of a pickup truck carrying a chainsaw and you're like yeah we cleaned a bunch out let's go take some cars through and see what it looks like and then two hours later we got to clean some oh, more out. You want to how, how that actually went? Okay, let me tell you how that actually <laughs> yeah. went. Dave so, tells you to go so, chop some wood. No, no, no. Let me explain and see how it actually goes. So normally on an East Coast race, I'm so jammed up from not being able to race Stampede because he moved it up early. So I can't even do it because I'm in Alaska, right? So I come back from Alaska. I'm already a race down. So I can't do the West Coast Series. So I have to do the East Coast Series. So I commit to like, okay, I'm going to drive to Kentucky, right? So I get to Kentucky. From Dave, Tahoe. Yeah. 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 It's awesome. And and I'm usually the first person there. And like, this has happened multiple times. The only person that usually was a challenge for me to beat there was, uh, Gilstrap's dad. Gilstrap's dad would usually like roll in second and be like, Oh, you're already here. And I was like, I don't like being late. And he always chuckled about that. And whenever I was talking, he'd come over and he, you know, I liked hanging out with his pops. I I just always gave myself a lot of buffer because I hated getting there late and I hated having a problem. You never know you're going to have a problem. That's a long way to drive. Right. Right. You know, so like basically Dave, a lot of times on a lot of these races would show up and I'd already be there happened at hot springs. He's like, Hey, or, you know, it happened in, you know, so, I mean, that's normal. That's normal. Like I always love to help everybody at ultra four help get the races, stake the courses, do whatever. Like if I show up early, you know what? I'm helping those guys. I'm helping Trotter. I'm helping JT. I'm helping those guys set the course. It's not an advantage. You know, wow. you're just, you're just working <laughs> idle hands. You know, we basically, uh, we drove around that course and it was super, super tight and it was all poison Oak. And, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania on a farm and like my dad didn't get poison Oak or poison Ivy and I didn't either. So like, literally I made so much money doing odd jobs, weed whacking poison Oak and poison Ivy as a kid. It wasn't even funny. I'd run the tractor in the bush hog and do neighbors fence rows and whatever. Yeah, if I breathe that stuff from my neighbor's yard, just breathe. Uh, I may, if I even glance over at it, I will literally break out. So literally I go into these woods and Dave's like, that's too tight. You're a tree guy. You should get that out of the way for me. And I was like, nah, <laughs> sorry. I was going to curse. I held back. That was for you. Wyatt. I was like, Dave, I don't think so. So then, and then I was like, all right, let's go get a chainsaw. We got to deal with this. This is going to be a, this is going to be terrible. Like Bill had a cool course, but it was just too tight. I literally went in the woods and Dave was like, okay. And he's ready to spectate. And I was like, you're not spectating. So I took down these trees and he's like, well, what now? I'm going to watch you freaking move them. I'm like, that's not how this works. I'm going to cut this stuff up and you're going to help me move it. He's like, I'm allergic. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) So we literally rolled it all the way and he had to help. And then we get back and I was like, this is how you get rid of the problem. And I took saw gas and a rag and I wiped myself down and I showed him how to do it. So him being allergic, didn't get it because he wiped down with saw gas. Well, I I was much appreciative. I still bent a rear axle. On, on that race yeah, yeah your car was huge it's huge <laughs> it was small with a very big footprint <laughs> <laughs> that thing was not small <laughs> yeah you bring a class one to a ultra four woods race in the east coast there's been smarter things done that was 
not up there. That thing was fun. It just needed it just needed like another two foot of track width through the woods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh man. Well, let's get into it, man. You you mentioned you're By from PA. You mentioned yes, you're from Pennsylvania, Bartow, Berks uh, County. Yeah, I don't know what oh, else sure, is there. Actually, there's nothing there except for uh, Reading. Reading, how you even yeah, say it? Reading, Trexler Town. So Trexler Town was like where the velodrome was for road cyclists for the U.S. team. Okay. So there, there was a bunch of cyclist influence in that area as well. Um, and then there was a little ski area that was right next to uh, where I lived called Doe Mountain Ski Area, and that was a four or five hundred vertical ski hill that uh, I grew up skiing at since I was like eight years old night skiing and whatnot and that's like it's, it's like it's crazy when we talk about the ultra four community and and the guys running the top echelon you know your front runners always in that discussion blyler he's clean clingersburg is 75 miles away that's like well, what's even funnier is it's even closer wyatt because my my grandparents my mom's parents basically uh um, the Long family, my uncle Tom and Phyllis Long and uh, my, my, my grandfather, they, they grew up in, in Catawissa and on the, the Susquehanna River, my uncle Tom has a, a campground called the Indian Head Cramp- Campground. And that is literally like in Blyler's front nine. I mean, it's right there. I mean, and that's what's funny to me is like, that's where I grew up where, you know, seeing people fishing for muskie and, you know, just Pennsylvania. You know, like I grew up in, uh, in between Berks County and Bucks County. Tell me about your parents. Not a lot of skiing there. Um, my dad, uh, was, uh, an elementary school principal. And, and before that he was, uh, um, always involved in education and he was also a football player. Um, he was a nose guard and, uh, he grew up in, in New Jersey and was a first mate and did a, a lot of ocean fishing and hand lining. He was a badass. He met my mom and And she's even more badass than him. She's gnarly. My mom's gnarly. Like I've got the ADD of my dad and then I've got the intensity of my mom. So I've kind of got the, the, the pair of them in, into me, but, uh, but basically fast forward a few years. So 1979, we moved to, uh, to Huff's church, which is where our farm was and it ended up by the end of it. Once my dad got a couple more pieces of land, it was a hundred acres right there. And it was, uh, um, it was, a regulated hunting grounds. That was uh, kind of a bird farm with a dog kennel and the guy that caretake the whole place. And we ended up with a hundred acres by the end of it. And we moved in there in 79, it had an outhouse, not really hardly any running water in the house and like one outlet per room and, uh, with, with power and, uh, Let's put it in perspective. It was like an 1800 stone farmhouse that had like six foot windows. And we burned 13 cord of hardwood a winter to try to keep heat in that thing. And it had a post and beam building, hay barns. And like we had a 1937 John Deere Model A with a cultivator under it. And like I grew up with a Shetland pony and we had a cow for a while. We had pigs, we had chickens. I mean, we had a bunch of horses. Um, a lot of deer hunting, a lot of trout, trout fishing, you know, 1979 was not that long ago. I, I mean, it, it, yes, it was. And yes, and no, it wasn't, but to be 1979 yeah. and not necessarily have running water in a house, it, it almost seems people, if you say that today, we're in 2020. Yeah. You know, the house I grew up in didn't have running water. I remember being a kid. We had friends that didn't have, have running water in their house where we were in Kansas. 
now they were they were older i remember our phone we were on a party line phone so everyone on our road it was about seven miles there's about 10 of us it rang the phone rang at every single house down the line and people would pick up how insane is that that's not that long ago i was born in 76 and i remember this so this is probably 80 81 times man and now we're walking around with uh you know a smartphone you can look up anything you want in the world that's crazy yes locate yourself in a second Ah. it is crazy i mean to to be there and uh my mom was uh, a ap english teacher and teaching english as a second language at a private school that was in the in the same town as well and my dad was in the public school system so i had the choice you know as a, as a kid i was like do you want to go to public school or do you want to go to private school i chose the public school i don't know maybe i'd be a different person today if i made that choice then but you know there's there's points that come along i remember that that moment and then you know when i was uh, about to start ski racing more seriously and my cousin bill who ended up going to the citadel um, I went down there for his graduation and I, and I almost went military. So there was a moment where like, I could be a totally different person right now, or would I be the same person and just have more different memories? You know, like, yeah, there were some moments there where shit could have changed, but Charleston, it, it could change you anyway. Charleston's just gorgeous. Like I've fallen in love with that place. I didn't even know what to say when I went there. I was just like, I was there for the graduation and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, I didn't even know what to say. The Southern bells the beautiful campus, just the tradition, the proudness of all of it. Like, I mean, to come in there and like see my cousin who I just idolized, you know, go, go down there and, and, and just be the man he was like, and go to desert storm. Like that to me was like, that was changing for me. Right. But somehow ski, skiing one. <laughs> Did you have any siblings? Yeah. My sister, yeah, you my got older a sister. sister, your older yep. sister. Yep. What's she up to these days? She's an amazing lady. So um, her husband, uh, Scott, and her, um, they met in college. And she, at that time, she was a midwife and becoming a nurse and, and midwifery. And he is a doctor as well. And they actually moved to Zuni, New Mexico, and were living on the res there. And he was working on the diabetes program. And they met in Marquette, Michigan. So once they kind of had enough time on the res where they were like, you know, it's time to go, they moved back to Marquette and built a house up there and raised her three girls. So my nieces are pretty interesting girls. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine. This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the Talent Tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Branding hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Branding my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Branding lines of forged 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Branding has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small. 
They're amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I've out missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brannick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy pre-runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannick, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannickMotorsports.com. Brannick is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. So my mom and dad, basically, they're the opposite of snowbirds. They actually moved colder, which makes no sense. So I, I, I give my sister a hard time about that constantly. But so basically, they live in Marquette, Michigan. So instead of getting warm, my parents moved cold. So they moved to Marquette. They sold the farm. And a, be- a really nice couple bought the farm. Your mom wanted to be by those babies. She needed to buy her grandbabies. There's a, there's a little bit of time in between here. So in between, they got a house down in Cape May, New Jersey, next to uh, a good friend of mine's from high school, Kane Wentz. And uh, basically, they got down there, and my dad got to reinvigorate his love for the ocean and being on a boat, and he, and he, and he, and he got another fishing boat. He got to do some time fishing and enjoy himself. And then a few years ago now, he had a stroke, and I was on my way out to... Uh, I forget what East Coast race it was right now, but I met it. I mean, there's always the constant people that are always just amazing help. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Schofield and yeah, James Schofield, solid humans. I mean, like, I'm like, shit's going down. This is fucked. I was like, oh, shit. And then they're like, next thing you know, I'm dragging my trailer to Bama and stuffing it somewhere. And we were at Oklahoma. I rang the car out in the mud hole, trying not to get stuck and over revved the thing, blew the valve springs out of it and then towed it to Bama. I was working on it with James. My dad has a stroke. I drive out to New Jersey with my dually from there to see him and then spend time with him and then come back. He recovered really well and was doing awesome. Got the meds on board quick enough. You know, literally, I, I look back and think about my dad and like building the farm that we had, like, I mean, it wasn't a working farm. I mean, they were both, they had other jobs, but like, I mean, to completely restore an 1800s farmhouse and then every single outbuilding included <laughs> when it's all post and beam. And like, that's just amazing. I remember my mom, like being up on the, on the A of the front of the barn while my dad had a pair of vice grips taped to a piece of rope clipped on the siding and then my mom was hauling it up with a rope to put the siding up on the side of the barn. Like, I mean, resourcefulness. And that's where you got it from. You're a resourceful dude. (laughs) You gotta be handy. Yeah. And and everyone that knows you is always like, yeah, man, if I break down somewhere, I want Tom to be with me. It's not even like a running joke. It's like just a statement made like that guy. He's MacGyver. Well, it was like the thousand last year. I mean, a thousand last year, you know, like, Jason called me. He was like, dude, I'm freaking doing this thing with Ford. And I'm like, that's awesome. And he's like, I'd really love you to chase me from what Matomi wash on. And I was like, I got you. 
you know, and like, that's the thing that that's the amazing part about the Raptor. And like, Oh, we're going to talk Raptors. The Raptors no, we are, I don't ridiculous. <laughs> I can, you want to talk some ridiculous, I mean, the amount of exploration. I've got to go so many cool places in that truck. And you've it's, only had it since June. It's mind boggling. It's, it's been Talk in three countries. Northern Nevada, all the way to Oregon, all the way back and six ways from Sunday between here and Scorpion Bay. And then mix in Alaska. And then you had it in Alaska. Right? <laughs> and then you throw that in, sprinkle that in. But I saw it. I, I saw it at the Hammers. You had it at the Hammers in, in February. Yeah, you're in the desert loop. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it is a good looking truck. It's my favorite color Raptor. It's the, the Earth. Well, it's not Earth, actually. It's actually molten molten red or whatever underneath, and I, uh, and I wrapped it tan last year. Are you kidding me? I wish it was the train color, but it's it's the bright red-orange. It's the original Raptor R. It's the original Raptor R color. Gotcha. No, I didn't know it was red. I've seen it's an early it. 11. It's an early 11. I thought it was the Earth, so let me go ahead and believe that it's the... Everybody's got stories about that truck. That's the terrible part. No, it's really great. Like, that truck has done all of the R&D for Icon, like all of it. Like everybody's been like, oh yeah, I was, you know, boom. And I was on the roof and then like, oh, I helped, you know, fold up the training mount and, you know, like that truck's got history. So as a kid, yeah. what were you like as a kid? Curiosities? Were you in sports? Did you play football? You're a big dude. I paid, I played safety. I played defensive safety. I was an amazing football player by any means. It was hard to have the attention span to really like focus on all of it. Um, I hated baseball. Um, did a little bit of track and field, but you know, public school, we didn't have, we didn't have skiing. I was really interested in skiing. So when did that happen? When did skiing My cousin happen Phil was like an amazing skier. And, uh, I just, I wanted to ski so badly. The influence of like going to Doe Mountain for the first time, like I remember getting dropped off and it was like my first taste of freedom where I was like, I was completely by myself. And if I wanted to jump off anything I could, if I wanted to ski as fast as I could, it was like the ultimate in like not a team sport <laughs> fair enough and it's crazy how you know that it, to map your trajectory to today and we're, yeah something else so after high school though you go to vermont so yep. from pa you go to vermont you go to green mountain college yep how do you say the name of that town pulteney pulteney yes sir pulteney yeah yep. and you end up with a exiting out of there with a degree in recreation yep. i believe that's a degree it's a liberal school at best. Yeah, I, I read it. I was like, no, but that's such a fitting. That's such a fitting. <laughs> like, is such a thing? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can see you excelling at that. Like I can see just being around you enough. I know. Like that's wow. That's that's literally right, right up your alley. Completely up your alley. No, it's interesting because, like you know, I, I, w I was in college there, and um, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year. There was an opportunity. My my mom was like encouraging me to do a bunch of random stuff, and she was like, "Hey, you want to do a Knowles course?" And I was like, yeah, I'll do a Knowles course. So I did a 75-day Knowles course, and they gave me credit for American history at that college, which was actually really cool. Like, I learned so much. Like, I mean, I learned a lot. And Knowles is National Outdoor Leadership School. Seminar? School. School, yeah. And they did them all over the world. You could go to Bora Bora. You could go to Thailand. You could go to, you know, the Andes mountains, wherever they had something everywhere. They do a big deal in Wyoming too. But I think, you know, back then, like comparatively, uh, outward bound versus, uh, um, Knowles outward bound was a little more of a uh, people with a little more disciplinary problems than Knowles at that time. Basically I did a 75 day Alaska course, which started out backpacking in the Talkeetnas. And it was basically low impact camping and being in bear terrain. 
and, and bear habitat and, and, and really just being able to go through a lot of cold, wet Creek crossings and carrying a heavy pack and dealing, dealing with your shit. And, uh, you know, I was really excited. I, I trained super hard cause you know, I was really inspired to go up there and like take the opportunity. The second, uh, phase was, uh, we hiked from wonder Lake up by Denali and then hiked out to Mount Miller. And I can't remember the name of their two peaks right now. Um, but it was basically my first taste of glacial navigation and crawling around a glacier. And, uh, that made a huge impact on me and, and just crawling through moulins and, and just seracs and crevasses. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever, basically getting to see, you know, a big Alaska. And then the third phase, the instructors kind of let us out a little bit more. And then we went to Prince William sound and went out Whittier on sea kayaks. And that was actually when, uh, Mount Rugged erupted. So without any outside communications, we had a volcanic eruption with full ash come down on us without knowing what it was. That was kind of an interesting one. But that was pretty neat, like catching salmon and dragging them onto the bow of your boat while you're like paddling through Prince William Sound with killer whales and everything else. I mean, like it's it's the real world. How many years after Valdez was that? It couldn't have been very many. Not that long. Yeah. So like we were rolling rocks over and like literally you were finding rocks under a whale under rocks. Yeah, um, that was nice memory on that, dude. I appreciate that. Well, it is what happened up there. So was Denali referred to as McKinley still at that point? Um, yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's all the same. Yeah, but now when you're up there, it's really just reverted to. Everyone refers it to Denali. It's no longer yeah. McKinley, right? Yeah, everybody uses the Indian name for sure. Yeah, it's which is the segue into talking about skiing so you got into it your uncle gets you knit you go to Knowles. you really kind of set yourself on this path and i'm going to say this right now for jonathan terhune this is the inflection point <laughs> he, he, he he loves that phrasing I, I, I love to say it too it's one of my favorites but you know you have this you've you've been set on this path you've been set on this career path and you've been on it for 30 years at this point you start skiing in the northeast you start getting good you're good enough that it's obvious that you are at the peak of where you're at. You're, you're at the top of your game and you take the leap to move out West. You move to Tahoe, you're skiing it. You have to help me on, on, on. Well, I actually moved out to Squaw race Valley. down mountain bikes. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I see. I didn't know that. So yeah, you got into, you got in downhill mountain bikes, but then you end up like your home, home course is like Squaw Valley, right? So basically I moved to, to Tahoe. And I came out to race uh, the North America's Championships. And I was at the time, downhill mountain biking was just starting to grow. And uh, I started racing in Vermont. And at that time, there really wasn't a designated downhill racing. There was just cross country and downhillers were still racing cross country. So to be better skiing, I was getting really serious on my bike and was really motivated. And uh raced uh mount hunter which was a world cup race at that time and was racing norba national in pro and uh started getting a little bit of sponsorship to race downhill mountain bikes and i moved out to tahoe to race uh the north america's championship which was at squaw valley and then i was going to go down to mammoth and race uh the reebok eliminator and the kamikaze you know basically was racing a little bit of down the mountain bikes and trying to still ski. And it was hard living, dude. I didn't want to, I didn't, I mean, I was like, I don't want to go back to Pennsylvania. So I, I literally moved in with a, a friend of mine that uh, started a taxi business in, uh, in Squaw Valley. 
and uh, moved in with a bunch of people that ended up being the the Red Bull Air Force and <laughs> a bunch of maniacs. And and you know, honestly, like the the tempo of, of what's pro and squaw has been really high for a really long time. The level you were racing at, the level you were skiing at, you got to see a lot of the world. Oh yeah, no, like honestly, I I, I feel super blessed. Back then, uh, Scott Mellon was the marketing director for Marker. And he got picked up by Benetton and got hired, I believe, as the vice president at the time. He hired me to start skiing for those guys. That was like my first real opportunity where I really I got to design a pair of skis and design some clothes and get a budget to to go skiing and be me. That was pretty cool. And I had a, an amazing team. Um, There's a bunch of really talented athletes on that program at the time. I mean, Nordic is spread at that time was was incredible like at that time just give me a second here Bodie Miller Shane McConkie Jeff Holden who jumped a 160 foot cliff in Alaska that year just like gifted BC skier love to jump off huge airs Jimbo Morgan who uh another huge influence in my life Olympian uh, U.S. ski team speed skier Brad Holmes original bad boy from Squaw you know, and, and that was back when Glenn Plake and Scott Schmidt and all these guys, Ingerbritsen was in the mix too. I mean, all of these guys were just super talented skiers. Uh, about 19, I mean, well, let me just think about, let me just think about them. So originally like getting early ski partners, Jim Morrison, Christian Pondella, we went some incredible places. I mean, in the early nineties, going to Chamonix, France and ski mountaineering and wanting to swing ice tools. And that was kind of in the beginning of, you know, learning, uh, getting mentored a little bit by some painting contractor friends of mine that were actually super badass mountaineers and ice climbers learning how to be proficient at ice climbing. And you got into that for a while, right? Are you still into it? I, I love ice climbing. I, I haven't done it in, in, in longer than I care to admit, but like having ice tools and your rope, Put me in the game, coach. I'll come out the other end. <laughs> well, and, and, the, and again, those are those are skills, right? Those are skills you you started as a kid. You you certainly, I know you honed them in seventy five days at Knowles. But all the the mountaineering skills, the really rope there. skills, and that was that was just more glacier stuff. Yeah. But I mean, reading terrain, you know, reading terrain, and that, and that's something I'm 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 super blessed with. I, I have an ability to remember terrain better than a lot of people. And I, I figured out how to visualize it finally and how to trigger memories that activate the, the visualization of it and read and train at speed. I mean, that's what's always motivated me to desert race and, and then want to off-road race is read and train at speed and train memorization. And that's what's always carried over on so many sports for me that just make all the difference in the world from dirt bikes to snow machining. And I mean, that's the coolest part, like the, the amount of places I've got to go on a sled. I mean, my years skiing for Arteryx, you know, in the later years, around 99, moving into 2000s, um, signing with Arteryx and, and being one of their first brand ambassadors that's ever been on their program. And that was when they're still privately owned and being down in Portillo, Chile, when I met some Russians. And that was uh, a huge turning point for me when I got to go to Russia three different years and explore the Kamchatka Peninsula and the whole Sochi and the Caucasus region, you know, when, when literally like there was no Americans there. I mean, when we went to Kamchatka, we were the second Americans ever there, you know, and that's neat to be able to like tell your granddad, be like, Hey, I'm, I remember I told my granddad, I was like, Hey, I'm going to go to Petropavlovsk Kamchatsky. And he was like, you're going where? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm going, I'm going heli skiing over there. He goes, that's the nuclear sub base. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
but no, that's immensely fun. But when in there did uh, the Dex games kick off? So that would have been Nordica era. So my brain works weird. Um, so that was Nordica stuff. So that would have been uh, that would have been late nineties. So yeah, X Games Crested Butte racing skier cross skier cross kind of started in Lake Tahoe and skier X, um, and basically it, it started with my friend Aaron Martin and a few other guys who were promoters that brought Red Bull in the United States and then Tahoe City was uh, their test market. And their first event ever was the Rebel Ultracross at Mount Rose. And I got second in that with Greg Nevlo. And that was my first cash ever. And I spent it immediately going to Valdez and going heli skiing. And that was my first heli trip in Alaska where I was like, this is awesome. And then I immediately went home and was like, I need to get up here and guide because I can't afford just to come up and go skiing. So that's when I was like, I want to be up there as much as possible. And at the time, Kevin Quinn opened Points North Heli. I helped him open that in 1998 into 99. And that was uh, my first uh, year's guiding in Alaska. That was the first year I drove up in my 89 Chevy. What's your nickname up there? They call you, you you've got a nickname. I don't have a nickname. You do. I don't. <laughs> you wish I did. I don't. No, I, 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 swear, I swear I saw something they call you like Sarge or like the old Sarge or something like that. Oh, that was the guy that wrote that article that you read and that was in uh, Backcountry Magazine. I probably that's did actually, read it That's somewhere. actually a pretty cool article, but it was just the way that Reggie wrote it. It was just, he was trying to be dramatic. What magazine was it? It was in a magazine? It was an article? Yeah, there was, there was, a, there was like a 10-page feature in uh, this one mag with the, the opening picture of the of the shot is uh, this like double page that Pondella took of me standing on Mount St. Elias. I have not seen it. Okay. On the South base. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I, now I'm going to have to look at, but I, I remember the first time I, you know, I knew you from King of the Hammers. I knew you from King of the Hammers. I re- knew you from the, the rig you raced at the time. This is oh nine, 10, 11, somewhere there. I did not know you were a skier. Someone had <laughs> told me that. And then I find online in the picture that I found online, or maybe it was on pirate, probably on pirate was you on a, not skiing, but it was on a sled, but you're oh, right way the hell up above any tree line and the slope yeah, yeah. is something way way greater than 45 degrees is it doing a shit hook yes it, doing a slash turn yeah, and, yeah that's and, a wisman shot that's a wisman shot that's called a shit hook whatever it is it was <laughs> freaking badass no yeah i saw that i was like whoa, whoa i know this guy this guy's crazy this guy, no this guy's really crazy no yeah no where you can go on a snow machine is pretty cool it's neat, you know, like riding up there, riding down here, like getting to ride as much as I have in Canada, like the teammates, um, on Arteryx, the Canadians I got to ride with, like, I got to see some really neat zones, you know, and like technology in those things has just went leaps and bounds in the last 10 years too. Just, Oh yeah. No. And and that's actually a tie in to Paul Horschel. I mean, that's actually funny. He, he's a big snow machiner and builds turbo kits for those things. I don't know if he is anymore, but, uh, one of my teammates on Eddie Bauer and also, a um, amazing, uh, snowboarder, uh, I super care about Chris Coulter. I mean, he was, uh, he came out to hang out and pit for me at Tuella one year and Paul was his friend. And he's like, yeah, my buddy Paul's building a KOH car. And I was like, yeah, 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 sure he is, right? At this time, he hadn't showed up yet. And I was like, everybody in their brother's building a KOH car. Sure he is. And then he shows up with that Danzio motor and, like, that thing all dialed in and being a boy from Alaska. And I was like, him and I hit it off awesome. And, like, you know, we were just two peas in a pod. And, like, our crews hung out forever. For him to be a Salt Lake guy and, like, 
be like super good friends with like one of my, I mean, I, I Paul no will tell you that, but I, I, I think Paul could have been a pro snowboarder, but he won't admit that to you. You should ask him about that when you get a chance. That chance needs to happen. He is so high up my list. Uh, He's elusive. Elusive. He, he, like a chupacabra. <laughs> I've had many people ask me to, Hey, when are you having Paul Horschel on? And I don't have a relationship with Paul Horschel, but I know I could call him and I'd still have been told that he would still tell me no, just cause he doesn't do public stuff. I was with Jeremy Dickinson a couple years ago. He qualified on the pole for, uh, for I, got him, I got him set up with BFG. Well, I turned him onto the development team. There you go. That was me. You're gonna have to put in a good word for me. I don't. I don't know if I can. He's on NATO now. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, maybe, maybe it was Shannon Welch or Dave or somebody. They had like this uh, king's throne, or, or, or where the pole sitter would sit on this thing until they got knocked off during the power hour. Well, Paul ends up being the one who's supposed to be on that thing. Only there's no way you were going to get him on this chair. He left. He went to his trailer. He hid. Jeremy Dickinson he gets the radio call to, hey, we need you to go get Paul and bring him back over here. So I'm on the in the side-by-side. We go over there, and <laughs> Paul's wife is up on top of the back of the race trailer, and she's watching, and she looks down. He's not going to come out. He's not going <laughs> over there with you. <laughs> Fool's Aaron. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, he's he's a hell of a fabricator, hell of a driver. Yeah. I you know w- what's going on in his head. Just a lot of people want to plug in there and see because it's uh it's got a bunch of magic on the on the winning side. Good people. So all your years skiing and you still ski every year. You just came back from Haynes. How have you been able to stay on top of your game doing that as you've gotten with age? Stay healthy. Well, I quit smoking a couple of years ago, or maybe three years ago now. No nicotine, no chew, nothing. I'm glad I finally could kick that habit, and I feel really healthy right now. I feel really strong. 2005 was tough, you know, when I broke my arm and the nerve damage and everything, and I had my left arm. That really set me back. And uh, to come back from that, even with the disabilities I have in my left arm, I still feel pretty stoked, you know, because you know, driving an off-road car is not easy. You know, and and then honestly, the amount of feeling I have in my left arm isn't incredible by any means. So is is that the wreck I saw on? I saw this on YouTube. On is start on MTV. Is that what it was? And they interview yeah. you, and it's like a very yeah. young Tom Ways. I got blasted. Yeah, it, I compound humerus my left arm and got a heli flight down to Reno. And good story here. So Berger and his wife were there because Berger used to help me a bunch on a bunch of the different uh, film shoots. Cause he thought it was, it was fun. And he's, you know, he's burger. He's burger. So basically like burger brought the flight nurses from the, from the heli up to grab me, to drag me down to the heli, you know, like I was hurt, but that took seven surgeries in one year to get out of that. Like, here's a good story. Burger and I going into the Rubicon and he's like, you're going to lose your mind if you don't get out of the house. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So we're, we're in my land cruiser. I can't remember if I had 39s or 44 TSLs on at the time, SM420. And I had a pick line in, IV antibiotics going. And I had an IV bag hanging from the B-pillar, driving an SM420 with one hand, with my arm in a crutch and IV going, with Burger in the passenger seat, with a shovel going in the Rubicon. Yeah, he didn't tell me any of these stories. Uh, he has so Dude, many stories. He says Burger to tell you this story about me stapling his head shut with his wife's stapler. So you used Andrea's stapler so burger when he had that rusty bray buggy it had somebody put the the b pillar plexiglass in or lexan with the quarter 20s facing forward so he laced his head open when he almost rolled it over backwards because he's 
a little bigger than would fit in that car. Well, he's like six three. Yeah. You wedge him in that thing, and uh, he laced himself open, and he just laid his head open super bad. And we get to his house, and he's just like, this isn't good. My wife's going to kill me. This isn't good. My wife's going to kill me. And I was like, let me see that thing. And, you know, like, uh, I've been in the EMT and the wilderness first responders since, like, 97, right? And his, <laughs> so and his like, wife's a nurse, so I'm sure she exactly. does have a, a, so a bag. Like, she literally, he literally calls Andrew, and he's like, Tom's thinking about stapling my head. What do you think about that? Instead of coming to the ER, she's like, no, that'd be fine. So literally like God bless like, her. I, I grabbed the stapler and I like spread the hair on the back of his head and I was like, You ready? And he was like, Yes. And I was like, wham, and you could feel a thing like go down, hit the bone, and like ben. screech in and then peel up. And he was just like <laughs> eyes crying, looks up at me, and he's just like <laughs> I won't say what he said, but he's a tough SOB. Finished the job. My wife came home and she was like, You actually did a really nice job and you kept the hair out of there. Nice work. So hey, you can staple my husband up anytime. Uh, what an awesome woman <laughs> so yeah when did you start doing the trees when did you start your tree business there in the tahoe area shoot what year was that um forgive me on the year but it was basically in the beginning of when i started doing tree work was right about the time when i got my first skiing magazine cover so hank DeVries shot skiing magazine um, and I remember I was cutting trees and I was down the West shore and he called me. So it was probably about a year before that. So, uh, that would have been atomic skis. So that would have been late nineties, early thousands, 2000, maybe one in there, in there somewhere. So you knew Britson then and you guys, I didn't, I didn't you, know him that well yet. I rode him on the, I rode up with him on the chairlift a couple of times. We were going over up to KT 22 and going up the fingers. And I remember we were talking skis and everybody was jumping off everything back then. And, um, I remember I talked to him up on grand chief peak and he asked me, he's like, Hey, I heard you grew up on a farm. You got any interest in learning how to do tree work? And I was like, yeah, I'll talk about it. And, uh, next thing you knew, I went from like learning a little bit about tree work to fully embraced in it. And, you know, we were running a saw five days a week, thousands of hours of bobcat and crane trees over lakefront houses, huge trees running a saw a lot. Yes, somebody's got to do it right. I'm happy I never cut myself with a saw. I'm proud of that. That's hard. I think so many people, like everybody's got a story about their granddad or uncle or dad or whoever's got a chainsaw freaking cut on them. Like, I mean, I cut myself with a table saw when I was a little kid, but like I never cut myself with a chainsaw. I don't have any chainsaw stories. I regularly use mine. I've got two of them. I've got a steel and then I've got a husky. Uh, they both have their place. And I usually try to limit myself to two tanks of gas through the Husky in a day. After that, I'm like done. Like I need, it's going to be a 12 pack and some more than that to, to go to bed. And then the last time, uh, I really did over in theory should have overdid it was, uh, we had hurricane Harvey and we had a, a, a tornado went through our, uh, our subdivision. I ran four tanks through that thing in, uh, I don't know, like four hours. Like it was just nonstop drop it. And there was all the volunteers, you know, our neighborhood was awesome. All the volunteers that jumped into, I didn't have to lift a finger aside from sling the saw. Just cut, drop, chunk. They were dragging me to the curb. Good for you. That makes tree work awesome. I mean, when you okay. don't have to move a single branch, the br- <laughs> you can. That's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> That's how it's supposed to be. Right? Yeah. If you can do it that way, if you never have to pick up the branches, then yeah, you can. It's amazing what you can accomplish. Well, so then yeah, I get, ran you know four tanks through. I was like, man, that wasn't bad. That's when I realized it's all the other stuff that that's why I, I had to limit it. Yeah. You got plans uh for this summer? 
obviously uh, it, it's evolving as we speak, I think for everybody, you know, right. I mean, I think uh, what, what happens next is it'll be interesting. You know, I, I would love to get back to doing a bunch of events and, and whatnot, but I don't know if that's uh, going to be the course for a lot of people in the immediate future. Well, I was just mean from the tree standpoint, is that your game plan for the summer? I think so. You know, I think I, I, I'd like to think that uh, like do some tree work and supplement and try to keep in a nice holding pattern and, hope that some normality can come back to the world and move forward. You know, you're living there with uh, your fiance, Stacy there in, uh, yeah. in Reno. She's probably yes, going to be ready for you to get the hell out of the house. We've actually been doing great. She's an amazing woman. I'm really thankful that uh, we've been able to spend as much time together as we have been. Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full get. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but, with extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples, they've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back-ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website, magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you are a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT. 10 and get a special 10% discount. Now back to the show. So we've touched on this a little bit, but this is the part of the interview that people are going to, you know, really want to hear. Like, how did Tom Ways get into off road? This dude comes out mountain biking, he's skiing, he's living in the right area, right? Fordyce, yeah. Rubicon you can't not be an outdoor guy and live in that part of the world and not be. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I've lived eight miles from Rubicon or 10 miles from Rubicon for a really, really long time. And, uh, you know, get to the point to where I could tell you every single rock on the thing, you know, as well as the majority of the rest of the Sierras. I mean, whether it be on a mountain bike or dirt bike, snow machine, rock crawler, whatever, like I've tried to explore as much of the West Coast as I possibly can. And I've always made a huge effort to do that. I think being a multi-sport athlete, it enables you to be able to do that year round. You know, you're not just limited to when the season's best for that sport. Very, I mean, you're an intriguing fella. 
just dude. There's so much cool shit though that like we it's like such a scratch at the surface. That's how I feel right now. I'm like, there's so much shit that like I'd love to keep talking about. Like it's crazy. Like that's the hard part for me. You know, that's where I feel. So you like burgers? Yeah, I listen to burgers, and 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 to me, like it, it was cool because there's so many things that we've done together that I forget about. Like when I called him and gave him shit about it, I was like, dude, that was actually really good. I liked it. And he goes, you know, he started, you know, he's obviously always humble too, but like ultra competitive. But like, you know, like I remember when him and I went up to go ride with Jason at the cabin and this would have been in 2003. And back then Jason couldn't ride a sled to save his life. He was terrible. Literally his father-in-law, Steve-O bought my Ski-Doo off the back of my truck after the ride. He was like, that's a nice looking snow machine. How much to leave it here today? Let me get out my checkbook and like literally like bought my fucking skidoo that was all punk rocked out with like snow cross suspension on it. And he was like, that's not leaving today. And I was like, oh, OK, that's how you want to do this. You know, and like the the dirt bike stories with Jason, like going from his cabin in Plavada and riding up Rattlesnake, which is Cisco Grove that goes up to the committee crossing on Fordyce, dropping down committee onto Fordyce during Sierra Trek. And then riding up all of the windshields on our dirt bikes all the way to the top where Summit Lake used to be, where Ole was, his garden home, where we mixed gas for our two strokes and then rode all the way down the crest, all the way to Downeyville, where we dropped into Downeyville, went down, got hammered drunk on Coors Light and Pizza, and then rode up all of the Downeyville downhill mountain bike rides all the way to the top of Packer saddle in the Sierra Buttes, rode down the other side and all the way back to Little Truckee Summit. I'm talking like a 110 mile all dirt two stroke ride with like Jason Shear laying fetal position after crapping his pants like on Fordyce. Like that's what we live for. Just like creedling each other to where you're just like sitting there like Tyrannosaurus Rex with your fingers like this. (laughs) And then like burger on Rubicon, like burger on Rubicon and like helping him to disable sports. Like taking kids into the fucking or whoever they were like taking people into do disabled sports and all of it all over the years. I mean, like that's the, like I listen to it. And then like, I think about like the ski movies that he was helping me get into different spots. We drove to twin falls, Idaho from here, nonstop and back to buy a snowmobile to replace my ski do that I sold Jason's father-in-law. There's so much of it. Squaw itself. And, Fuck everything between. So many great memories. And yeah, you're right. Great people. And you're making new and new and better and greater memories by the moment. That's what's cool. Oh, yeah. So growing up, you guys had farm trucks, three wheelers, tractors. Oh, yeah. You get into FJs and you've been yeah. an FJ guy ever since. Have you ever owned yeah. a Jeep? No Jeeps? No, I never had a Jeep. Never had a Jeep. Always, uh, I always wanted one as a kid, but like a, uh, uh, I don't, it just so happened, uh, my sophomore year in college, my, uh, my dad helped me get this 79 FJ 40. And before that I had a, an 83, uh, mini truck. Um, before that it was a Honda civic and, uh, and our 71, uh, Chevy farm truck, you know, tractors and lawnmowers. I was the asshole trying to stick it in fifth in the snapper lawnmower and wheelie it, you know, <laughs> 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 and, and see, I've had so many conversations with guys because like, I grew up the, so much the same way as you. Like, you grew up on a farm. You don't even get the option not to learn how to be a mechanic. You don't. It's It just goes with the territory. You're going to learn how to fix what you broke, or you're going to learn how to fix and repair whatever, do triage, because that's the only mode of transportation. That's how it's going to be. Yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't imagine 
you know, I always loved running around in our tractor with the bush hog on and, you know, that was awesome. I'd always be running towards the edge of the swamp though, trying to get in a little further, you know, it's just. <laughs> right. You have to, you got to push it. <laughs> At what point living in Tahoe, did you meet Yoder? I met Yoder on Fordyce and then, uh, I met Yoder on little sluice on Rubicon. You know, that was kind of the, you know, and back when parts of the Rubicon were, were really rowdy and, you know, just basically, uh, you know, wanted to run my car as best I could in Tahoe back then. And, you know, it was the evolution of Toyota axles and putting sixties in it and taking this front 60 out of a saw truck. That was one of the saw trucks and, uh, uh 60 or 70, I think it was out of a Dodge. That was another truck at the yard. And next thing you knew, I had one tons and didn't have Burfields anymore. And, you know, but it goes full circle. In 05, I ended up getting another FJ40. So that's been uh, been a, a nice thing to have constant. You know, I've always loved being a Toyota nerd with the, with the best of them. What do you drive today? What's your daily driver? The 2011 Raptor or right. my Duramax Dually or my... Land Cruiser, which is parked right now because I pumped a hole in the oil pan. <laughs> See, that's right. I was, I knew you had to have a Toyota in there. That the, the, a, the no, my, my, that 40 is nice. That 40 is nice. I like that 40. That thing's a honey. <laughs> so, yeah, man, I, I knew you had to have a relationship with Yoder. That part of the world, Yoder was the like that dude's hardcore. Dude, he's the guy that convinced me that taking my rock crawler and desert racing was a good idea. He was the guy. He was like, you need to come and do Vora. And my first desert race was the Hawthorne 250. And that was my first desert race I ever did. And my car handled horribly. I mean, the thing was terrible with two O shocks on it and blown out coilovers. And, but that was my first race. Ian Plain and I did that. And, uh, Yarrington 300. And- Yoder was pushing the limits of a four wheel drive. Had King of the Hammers happened yet when, uh, when he first started really endurance racing his car? Maybe it maybe it happened one year. It was right as it started. Yeah, yeah, it was right as it started because I mean Kevin back then. I mean he was he was racing up here. I mean I remember going to Prairie City in one of the early early races and Randy Avery, who was like one of the other pro truck guys that raced against Mello. He was fast. It was like super fast on the Prairie City track, and that was like the first time you're like, oh wow, you know what I mean? And you know back then like. There wasn't a lot of standouts in, in, in four wheel drive and, uh, you know, people were still, you know, class one. I mean, that was in 07 when, um, I met John Hara and his son, Mark, and went down with, uh, John Hara and speed technologies. And that's when, uh, when Berger invited JT along and that was JT's first desert race he's ever been to. I mean, I got to take JT with me to Baja for the, for his first Baja trip. I mean, I didn't have any racing experience back then, but I went down there surfing. I'm a terrible surfer, by the way, but I mean, <laughs> but even a bad day surfing is still a better than a good day of any, a lot of other stuff at all. I hate it. <laughs> so, but that, that Oh six speed tech trip you guys chased, but you guys did Mexico, right? Well, we had fun. I mean, I, I think, uh, burger, his first trip down there. I think it might've been his first trip out of the country. I mean, JT, I, I wish we could have went further. It was super frustrating and discouraging for me at that point, like to, to, to watch that race go down. But like, I think John, you know, I, I appreciate that he got us all together 
and got us to meet each other at that point, you know, because oh, those relationships. that was a peninsula run. He spent so much money. It just, it was, is mind boggling to me. Like I felt like I could have went further with a, with a, with a mini truck and my tool bag from the Rubicon than he could with two Damon Jeffries cars, you know, which is, I guess a fair, a fair assessment, but the relationships that came out of that trip, that 06 trip for you guys to Baja, you guys are still tight together. You can still pick up the phone at any Jason second. Jason was there for that too, because he was there at horsepower ranch with that, that bug that barely ran when it showed up down there and like they cobbed that thing together. And I mean, I, I remember that was like hanging out with Jason at horsepower ranch. And now is, is that the bug that, uh, it was the magazine bug that like yeah. that Chris Corbett was involved with Chris Corbett was a co-driver in it at exactly. one point. And it was like Chris's last desert race. something happened. He's like, I'm done. I'm never going to get back in. No, it scared him <laughs> something, but it's, it's funny what that one event, you know, there's these different events that have happened in all of our histories has kind of brought us together. But yeah, JT was running speed tech race ops, not even two years later. Yeah. He was the crew chief and they, and he did a great job with it. And it's interesting because there's a lot of influence that came through Reno with a bunch of the, the younger guys that all, got to mentor under a bunch of great, great people that would have never been able to do that if it wasn't for Hera and bringing those guys in. So there was like multiple engine builders that John, you know, consumed that were just amazing mentors. I mean, like the guys that got to do sheet metal work under, under the mentors that, I mean, they built so many pro lights and there's so many race cars got built. I mean, that's the reality of it. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, everything from pro lights to 6100s and everything in between. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of race cars that a bunch of people got to put their hands on. And, and I think that's neat for any community, especially with uh, the heritage of this place, like Rod Hall. Like, I mean, Rod Hall got me uh, a winch sponsorship the first time I met him. <laughs> you know, like classic stuff. You know, he comes up, he's like, what do you do for recovery? And I was like, I try to avoid it as much as possible. <laughs> and you've been with Warren for how many years now? Well, that was actually with mile marker. There was like a couple years, but he was a mile marker guy actually. He was. But, yeah. But I'm, a, I'm actually a worn guy now and I'm proud of that. Those guys have been treating me really well and they have great products and uh, super stoked to have an A274 on my car and the rope that they supply is the best rope there is. So it's really uh, all the best parts and they do a great job, treat everybody really well. And before we get too far into the race career, you've been yeah. with BFG your entire career. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, like you it and the levels. I think it was 2010. I think it was 2010. Basically, I met uh, Victor at Off-Road Expo and Jason introduced me to him and he was like, hey, this is my friend Tom. He's in Warren Miller movies. You should talk to him. <laughs> and I started talking to Victor and he's like, yeah, I'll get you tires. And I was like, okay. Agnon. And, uh, Victor Agnon. Is that yes, right? Sir. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Good. That was a blast from the past. Is he around uh, motorsports anymore? Uh, I don't know what Victor's doing right now, but, uh, you know, I never forget that, you know? Yeah. Right. I, I, I remember the first time I got liners, I can tell you the first time I ran liners and how long that's been, you know, I've only ever ran tire balls once. And, you know, that was the year with the single seater for the first time when, when I had to do the last 30 miles on, on the rim. But, uh, you know, that uh, BFG, uh, been a huge part of my program for a really long time and they're an amazing company and. I feel real fortunate to be part of the program. Yeah, they put out a very good product. Very good product. At the top of the, the tire game, there's a lot of guys putting out some really good stuff, though. That's Yeah. I, I'm, I'm hedging my bets. You like that? Yep. <laughs> no, it's true. There's a lot of people making good tires these days. And, uh, well, they're driving each other in competition. Like, you know, people say, oh, BFG is the... Yeah. 
it, the winningest tire in Baja BFG. Well, there wasn't competition for a lot of years. Well, now there is, and they have bettered their game. Their tires have gotten better. And by that, the trickle down to the consumer has gotten better. Same with Nitto, same with Goodyear, same with Well, you, you, let's take it one step further, and a lot of people don't realize this. The tires are so good now that, that your wheels need to keep up. And, and where people are getting to the point where the wheels weren't getting, the tires weren't getting flats, and the wheels were getting flats. And, uh, you know, it, it's twofold. You make a great tire, and the wheels have to go along with it. And, and that goes on along into the main the U.S. stuff, like having good quality U.S. wheels that are forged in real wheels and not garbage coming over from China is a huge part of a race program now. And anybody that thinks otherwise is fooling themselves. No, there was definitely a window there a couple of years where everybody you broke a wheel every race. Yeah, I mean, or multiples or three or four. And the tire would mostly be fine, but you would break the wheel. Yeah. 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 And they did most of the time they did say China on the inside and you'd had manufacturers that they sold the Chinese wheels and they sold the American made wheels. So you had to make sure you ordered the part number that was the American one because it was so many mil thicker and of different, you know, it it didn't used to be a Pepsi can. It actually used to be in a mine somewhere. I don't don't know what what, what the, what the genesis of each, each chunk of aluminum was, but they're definitely different qualities. All right, man. So we kind of got off a uh, topic a little bit and then I want to steer it back to, uh, yep. back to ultra four. And, yep. you know, you ran that, that, that Trent fab car for many, many years. I think it was the first, well, no, not the first, it was the last probably converted trail car still running in the 4,400 main. I think we had split classes. You, I think you were still racing that car after the class split, like EMC had existed and you were still running it in 4,400, right? or maybe it's blurry right in there, but somewhere in there, you know, you need a a different car. You're going to get competitive. And there's a discussion with Jason Shearer and tribe and you, and you end up with that, uh, that single seat little car. Yes, sir. How'd that happen? It's a long story. (laughs) It's gotta be a good one though. I mean, because once you put yourself in that car, your driving style and how you drove and where you were competitively wise was all of a sudden highlighted. I felt fortunate to be able to get that thing. I think it was the fall of 14, right? And uh, basically immediately went to the hammers and uh, needed to make that thing, needed to understand it, right? And the thing about that car is it has more offset to the front diff and more belly clearance than a lot of people realize. So it's actually an exceptional rock crawler. And I think everybody at that point in time had the misconceptions of Dave Cole's original Kirby car and how flat a bottom that was and how bad it was in the rocks. Literally, that little car was so fast in the rocks and it was the, I call it the Brad Level theory on hammers. You don't make a wide car because it's always faster to drive between the rocks than over them. So, you know, an 83, 84 outside a tire car, um, that's super nimble is in my opinion, the fastest cart to hammers. So that year with my involvement with BFG, I ended up, uh, I think I had about 1500 miles testing on the KR2 before it was even released to, I think many other teams. And, uh, I had a lot of feedback on a couple different constructions on that tire. And I think I put 1500 miles on the car before showing up to qualify at KOH. I had a lot to prove to myself and a lot to prove to everybody. You know, I, Knew it was my first year, you know, racing by myself. You know, that was going to be a, a big change. You know, I was, I was really excited for it. Mentally, that's usually a pretty hard step. You know, a guy that you go into a single seater, it's a, it's a mental game, you know, trying to stay on top of the, all I guess, it. yeah, just all, all of it. it, right? Right, all, all of it. it. 
but for you, the transition probably wasn't as hard because you're used to, you know, the skiing solo, the being on a, a, a bike solo, being on a, a snow machine solo. You kind of had that going. You're good, good at reading terrain. You just needed to adapt to reading a GPS. Yeah, for sure. So uh, c- kind of a good uh, story behind that was I was just about to leave the starting line and uh, that thing had an A or B in the front. You know, got to remember to turn the power tank bottle on. So we're trying to remember that like three cars before we're leaving the starting line. And John Marking sticks his head in the window and he goes, that GPS is way too low. What are you thinking? And I'm like, great. (laughs) That's what I need right now. I can't do anything about it. (laughs) So literally, like every time I put it in reverse, my knuckles hit the buttons on the Lowrance and changed the screen and changed everything. So this is my first time using this seven HD, which I'd never had. Cause I had like a Baja 540 from like back in freaking when they were just the beginning. And, uh, I literally like I was lost and you know what going 30 mile an hour faster everywhere than I had ever gone before. Um, finally going race pace in that thing, you know, cause at that point, like the steering is just as good as the suspension. I mean, that's really the reality of a, your first IFS car, you're like, holy mackerel, this thing steers. It's not like driving a forklift. It goes where you want it to go. Yeah. So yeah. You want to talk about uh, qualifying or what do you want? Where do you want to go here? Oh man. Because you and I have talked about this, you know, strategy. Here's what Tom Ways and Wyatt Pemberton like to talk about when we talk in the past, in the past, when you look back and if you were to record our previous conversations from the last five years, when we talk, it tends to be race strat. Yeah. Was this 2015 when you rolled in qualifying? No, I don't know what year that was, but I started like 98th or 6th or something like that next to Tony and I. You were at, you were at the people. end. You were at the end. We were in the cheap seats, yeah. Like, there was, the, the, <laughs> the only people behind you were the ones closing the gate and so the cattle wouldn't get Seriously. back out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was like Vegas Torino that one year. So you leave the start line and everyone's like, that year, the discussion pre-race, you know, Tom Ways, your name is always in the the contention. You're always in the podium hunt. You're part of that conversation. You just don't have the wins. And I I, I want to see you there. There's a lot of people that want to see you. Not there. in hammers, man. I've always I've always have a hard time putting it together there. But you know what? As it's it, going to happen one of these days, and it's going to it's going to be it's going to be great. And, and I'm going to appreciate it that much more. You know, I know the speed's there. I, uh, I gotta get a good, a good, a good day. I gotta have a good day. But the thing is, everybody has good days these days. So you gotta have a great day. You gotta have a great day. And again, there's also, there's hundreds of people that have attempted that race and there's only been six winners. You know what? Like, yeah, that year, that year was tough. That year was tough because, uh, there was so many things going against us leading into it that just, they were all super tough and it just one thing after another, one thing after another. And then, you know, to get to like, it was the bottom of aftershock and made a left by accident instead of right. And went up the mine road instead of going up aftershock or whatever it was. And, uh, at that point I had passed Nick cause he was stuck in that first V notch. I can't remember which trail it was, but so I got by Nick and then I was by myself. I mean, like I was by myself, came through, went up over fissure and uh came down jack and gene mooneyham standing there going you're in a bunch of shit i'm like what are you talking about gene and he goes you're gonna have you're gonna get dq'd missing trail i was like what are you talking about and i was like we're gonna go with the shannon campbell theory on things here we'll deal with this at the finish line so then i got to chocolate thunder and big rich was standing there waving a red flag at me so then he tells me i'm in a bunch of problems so at that point like 
Dave had called John, my crew chief, and talked to him on the radio and said they were going to deal with it at the finish line instead of whatever and whatnot. And then I decided I wanted to burn into the ground and see how hard I could push the tempo and make the time up. And I think by the time I got the back door, I was an hour and 15 minutes leading the race. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was leading into the green flag. The, the conversation was that this is actually a silver lining. You have the ability. The problem is if you start that far in the back, and Marcos Gomez had to fight it this year, is if you're starting that far in the back, you have a huge pro in front of you. Every car you pass is elapsed time you gain. The problem is you still have, you're racing at a wreck. It's going to be like a wreck on a wreck as there ends up being trail plugs in front of you. If there ends up being a large traffic jam, it, you could give it all up. But if you're racing to beat that and you can actually get through that door before it closes on you. But hear, 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 hear this though, Wyatt. Like when you're racing by yourself and you're starting in the back, it's just like starting like the year uh, qualified fourth. It was uh, Paul and I side by side, Jason and Berger and Miller in the front. And, you know, Berger and Jason and I are definitely bench racing each other and giving each other a hard time. And I was like, well, I'm just going to sit here and let Berger navigate for me. I don't even need to push, you know, and you got to make sure he does it. He does it correctly. But, you know, just sat there and followed those guys. till I felt like it was time to pass. And then I wanted to make my move. But like when you start 96, I mean, Kirby came back to me and he goes, you know what, dude, don't even worry about it. You're just going to be passing slow people. You'll be fine. And I was like, you know what? It's It's an opportunity to not have to navigate. When you're in a single seater and you're in the back, the line's burned in. Oh, yeah. Like you're, you don't even GPS, GPS, you just can fall a rut. And chase dust. And so there is a lot of in-car videos from other people, not from you, of you blowing by them like, <laughs> like, like, what was that orange car? That was ways. <laughs> They're going 40, you're going 85. You know, like, like, his dad this year coming off the power line in the back there. And I was freaking moving and like they went in the middle of the, two, of the three lane. And so what took you out that year, that year you, uh, which year, the, the year where you started all the way in the back, you had, man, you were leading the field by an hour 15 on corrected. I think no, it was that, that, third, that hour third. and 15 quote. That's from the first year with the front tire flat and no spare. Was that so, what it was? And then, yeah. and then one year you blew up a third member. Was that like 16? And the one year, Hold on. I'll throw out all the things I remember. So the one year I blew up um, the third coming up outer limits pass um, returning from Emerson and then did the whole 247 divide in front only. And then the car wouldn't go anymore up the sand climbs. So I did the sand climbs in reverse and then came back to pit and actually had a little bit of help from Brennan Thompson. And then I towed him a little bit because he couldn't get through a section. Got back to Maine, and my guys changed a third member, a slip yoke, the axle shafts and the unit bearings, and a brake line and a caliper in the front. And then I got back to eighth place by Sledgehammer, and then was right jammed up with Whalen when he was working on his driveline, and then ended up blowing the rear driveline out of it, didn't have a spare, and then ended up going down to the plaque line and spotter strapped yanking people through that section because i was so annoyed that i wanted to let out some energy and then uh the 96th year oh yeah so anyway what happened then so i i I broke that drive line hiked out got another drive line finally after dark and wanted to finish and then was coming back around outer limits pass and broke the crank in my ls7 
And then that was it. And that was like just before the finish. Just take the other side of the Outer Pass between there and the island on the MDR. And then uh, the year I rolled in qualifying and I got 80 guys in the first 60 miles. And that's the year the GoPro malfunctioned. I got 80 guys in the first lap in the desert and then 16 on lap two. And then I was in physical fourth, I think it was, when I caught up to Lauren and Fairvani Sr. in, uh, I think it was Jack North or I think it was Jack North. And we came down wrecking ball together uh, when the three of us were coming down that one Jim Marsden video that he's commentating. And that GoPro died. Those GoPros died. They, they got nothing. They recorded nothing. Yeah. That's, that's a kick in the dick right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there we are. What made you decide to build a new car when that little single seater was doing so good? Cause like Mike Bo still has that car now. He's very competitive in it. Yeah. Still, it's still a very competitive car. You built a two seater. You've been racing that. Did you miss a year racing KOH while you were building? I did. I did. Okay. I needed to take a year off to finish. And, uh, I was optimistic, hopefully that I could, you know, maybe, run two cars and have a short course car and a, and a desert car. But, you know, the reality of how much work all of it is and how much money it is and how much time it is every time you go racing, like it was more than I could bite off and, and, and getting that car finished, you know, uh, that, that summer BFG did a cam three launch on the Rubicon and we got to give a bunch of rides, ride alongs uh, with a bunch of us. And it was just an absolute treat to give people rides. And it really kind of motivated me to, to finish and build that two seater. And then icon was a huge pivotal part of that. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, wanted to have a two seater and, you know, to be able to like have my teammate, Jeremy McGrath and go out to his ranch and, you know, do some events with icon out there and give rides. I mean, like the other summer I was able to play in Axel Hodges, Slayground two X games, freestyle dirt bike area in a dirt natural half pipe with the race car. I mean, like hands down, like I got to go up an 18 foot dirt half pipe and it was the coolest thing I've ever got to do in a car. I mean, and some of the guys that you're doing this with, they're such heroes. I mean, they're just, you know, pioneers, innovators, and they just push the limits. And that's, that's the people that you've surrounded yourself with. I, I always find that, uh, you know, I, I subscribe to the theory, you know, surround yourself by, you know, people that will challenge you, surround yourself by winners and you will elevate your own game. And yeah, yeah, I mean, you continue to do it. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest addition, recovery rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785 785- 
856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a custom splice solution. Now, back to the show. The new car, was this its first KOH? Yeah, last year, last year uh, was, was a debut race for it, and uh, we, were, we were down right to the wire finishing it up. Um, Rob McKinney and I, he co-drove with me in my first KOH, you know, back when my car was white. And uh, Rob and I um, have always done great together, and we raced Vegas Reno together one year. Um, Greg Hussey did the first half and then Rob jumped in for the last half. And, uh, that was the year that was a good story, but anyway, um, not to digress. Yeah. So last year I got fifth with it and, uh, that was like a two week old car. We had like 600 miles yeah. on when we left the starting line. And then this year you were a man on a mission and yeah, we screwed up a little bit and I got to take ownership. I'll just tell you exactly what happened. So we did all our pre-run and I felt really good. The car is in, in exceptional shape. You know, James helped with building some parts and, and Redline got me a new motor while my other motor was with James. And and that's James Schofield, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. The car is running great. You know, Mike Porter from Redline has done a tremendous amount to help me out. And his, his guy Chan there just amazing people. You know what I mean? Those guys always come through when I need help. My car was running really, really well. And I, and I was excited for it. We did all our pre-running, which is kind of what everybody's doing these days is running in your car and then tearing it down for prep and then figuring out when you're going to put it back together so you can go run the qualifier and, uh, power hours tough. And you know what, in the last couple of years, I got glasses my vision's not bad by any means, but like I've always been fortunate with really good vision. So for me, like being really crisp and sharp has always been like what I'm used to. So to be a little fuzzy and especially at sunset going into the sun is tough for me. And, uh, I, I drove as hard as I could this year without wanting to break it. And I don't want to drive so hard that I rip a corner off and have to deal with that. So had a pretty decent run. I think I ended up uh, 21st or something like that qualifying. And, uh, you know, what was as dark as it was. I felt good with it, you know, but then just to keep yourself honest and humble, like Jason came, you know, the next guy after me and smoked me. So and got pole or second to pole next to Lauren. But, you know, like I'm happy with that. Like that's a nice, respectable, mature place to start the race. It's not 96th where you're back in the in the back and it's not on the front where you're just trying to figure out your pace. But we screwed up. We put the axles in backwards in the front. I'll admit it. And with the Detroit in the front, the Gearworks locker, um, that thing basically uh, the amount of stub shaft engagement with the Spider Tracks inners enabled it to have three wheel drive and not four wheel drive. So literally, we we're warming it up on the stands, and I got over to jump in the car, and the guys were like, "Hey, man, what's wrong with this thing?" And I'm like, "Oh, that's not good." So literally, they ran over and told Dave. We ran back over to the pits, and one of the guys from tribe came over, I remember, which I super appreciate, you know, I think Clarissa asked those guys if, if they would help. And, uh, you know, it is in the ultra four community. We all jumped in and tore that front end apart and put it back together correctly. Ended up switching the diff. Jeremy Witt came over and was helping. And, you know, we, uh, tore that thing back together and I jumped in the car and tried to remain calm as possible and drive back over to the start. And, uh, I'm not really sure where exactly I started, but I don't think I lost a tremendous amount of spots. I think they put me in about 30th maybe. And, uh, I was supposed to start next to, to Bailey, Bailey Campbell, you know, we take off off the start and, uh, 
went on the hunt. Yeah. I remember what, you know, hearing them talk about it as you, they pulled you out of line or you pulled yourself out of line. It's like, something's wrong with ways, something's wrong with the ways. And then there was the yeah. conversation. And then it was like the, he, you know, they're not even letting the RTV set up at all. It's just slapping, you know, whatever they were doing, it was like, this is going. And then it was back and ways is off. And there you go. And so no, I was so proud of, so proud of my guys. I mean, everybody, you know, I, I, I felt bad and I, and I got to take ownership of that mistake. You know what I mean? Because it's not anybody's fault, but my own, you know, and that's a tough one. You know what I mean? Like you make a mistake like that, you, you're human, you know what I mean? And I wish it was something cooler than that, but it's not. <laughs> well, they look like the thing is they look identical except for one slightly, I mean, it's Long. slightly longer and or one yeah. slightly shorter. It's not by much. So, yeah, and if you don't know and they aren't, you know, physically marked with like, oh, crap, I need to make sure. And then it's like it's measured. Wait, which side gets the long side? Which side gets the short side, right? Yeah, especially when you're when you when you were not around these cars all the time. And it's not like, you know, you're like the short side's the driver's side, but the motor's in backwards and the transmission's in backwards and the atlas is in backwards. And, you know, everything's six That's ways from Sunday trying to remember how a low pinion runs upside down sitting in backwards and you know, trying to remember all this. And, you know, I, I, we took off and, uh, you know, I made a decision last minute to have Rob not ride with me just because I didn't really realize how much it was hurting him last year. And it's like a huge worry for me hurting my co-driver. Like I, I, I have a hard time with it. That was part of the reason to race in the single seater is just not feeling responsible for anybody else and not feeling like I, I was worried about hurting anyone. And, you know, at last minute I decided I was like, you know, I talked about it with Rob and his wife and, you know, I didn't realize how, how, how long it hurt him after last KOH. I mean, he was hurting. He was hurting for a while. His knees hurt for months. And that's not cool. And I didn't realize that. So literally, like, he's too proud to tell me, you know, basically, like, I made a decision. And I was like, all right, I'm going to bring uh, another friend of mine that I super trust. And I felt like we were making good pace. And we were passing a bunch of people. And, you know, we made a good run to Cougar Buttes. So I always do okay driving in the dust. So got to Cougar Buttes and kept working back towards, uh, back to pit one. And we got back to pit one. And, uh, when we came through pit one, we came through the, the second Marine gate and, uh, come out of pit one there through the second Marine gate or the first Marine gate and, uh, go on the move. And I think I got like, I don't know, 10 people maybe between there and the second Marine gate. And, uh, when I was coming up on the second Marine gate, I was coming around that last long right-hander. And I think I was doing about 108 or 109 or something like that through that whoop section. That's not big in there, but that inside was pretty good, but the dust and the wind shifted a little bit. So it was right in our face. So it went from like a nice side move where you could see a lot to nothing. I caught up to Bailey and, uh, right when I caught her, I got her light and I could get to the point where I could see the color of her panels. So I felt like I was right in the pocket on her and, uh, she checked up right up, just tucked right in there. I just jumped right in there and, uh, and then I, and I gathered up that gate and, uh, just, fu- yeah. just and fully I, caught it, gathered that gate up and, uh, went into a flat spin at 60 and, uh, miraculously, uh, um, landed on the back right tire on the throttle and managed not to roll and just had a bunch of shock fluid on my visor and, uh, jumped out and the upper A-arm was tore mostly off, um, decided at that point there was no way we could, uh, proceed to drive over to resolution and backdoor and drive down it the way the course was intended because I, I couldn't get myself to go drive off backdoor back or forwards. There's no way I would have folded the front of the car under and become part of the obstacle and everybody would have driven off of me off the drop off. And I just couldn't get myself to do it. And my brain worked so fast. Like I thought about it and I was like, the only way I could get down resolution and backdoor is to drive down it backwards. But then when I get to the 
backdoor drop off, I'd have to drive off it backwards. But because of the spare sticking out, I would land on the spare and then I would end up having to flop it on its passenger door to drive out of it on its side to get off. And I just, I, I couldn't get myself to do it. You're literally doing future Tetris in your head and you're like, they, <laughs> that none piece of doesn't good. fit there. None no. of it's None of it's good. So I, I drove across the infield and went right to my pit the way he told us we could in the driver's meeting and uh, fixed my car and then uh, drove back out on course and came back through the start finish. Then they told me uh, I had to stop because I was needed to stop. <laughs> you, you, you were you were 2009 Shannon Campbell. I asked if I could keep going and work on it at the finish line and they said no. <laughs> there you, and there you go. I couldn't affect anybody else's race at that point. And, uh, you know what, that's what it is. Which corner did you tear off driver or passenger driver's side? Damn. Tear that post out of the ground, bend it over, break six inch post filled with concrete ripped off. And then the 12 inch post with concrete didn't move. And the half inch plate that was the pivot that held the open gate facing towards me. I hit that right next to the shock tower and it hit the upper arm and that and blew the half inch pivot off of the 12 inch post. The front tire hit that post, and then that wicked it into the Frisbee flat spin. Well, l- luckily, your car weighs as much as it does, and you had the momentum on your side, because if you probably been going cl- slower, it probably would have been worse. I think, you know what, it's a, it's a good, safe car, and uh, you know what, i happy it went the way it did. So you're already fully repaired. You've had plenty of uh, idle time, idle hands, the devil's work. You have got the car fully back together, fully prepped. It's race ready right now, right? Um, the car I'd say actually was in really good shape, which was surprising minus that lick on the upper, upper control arm. So really like an upper control arm and, um, it's not in too bad a shape to be honest with you, which has been actually really nice. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's usually, it's just completely ragged out and you're just like staring at it going really. Yeah. Not, I mean, you hadn't hit any hard rock trails. It only really had the open on that for, yeah. So it's, she's still good. Exactly. So, yeah, you're race ready. So, it, it's ready to go on a trailer and go race somewhere, right? You never know. You never know. <laughs> That's right. We're ready to go get back racing. I think everybody is. Oh, oh my God, yes. What's the plan for the rest of the year for you? You're going you're gonna to try to do some saw work? Are you going to try to make nationals? Yeah. Uh, no. No. Uh, no. Nationals, I, I'm not going to go to Oklahoma. I After swamp buggy racing with the rattlesnakes back there, I'm good. Uh, Fair enough, but there is Winnie Wood. It's been dry. It's been dry since then, and I and I do. I really I do like that place. Crossbar is a cool place, and uh, you know what? I just it, it's just too much. It's just too much. It's too much effort late in the fall for me to race there. If I was going to race, you know, I think that's the hardest part now. There's so many cool events to do. Picking what events to do that makes sense for you and your sponsors is the hardest part. So, does it make more sense to try to go? race with someone else during the thousand run your own effort for the thousand. Does it make the most effort to go race nationals? Does it make the most effort to go to Falk Randon? You know, like there's so many cool things that you can do. Like the amount of hours it takes me to get ready to go back to hammers. That's a tough one. It takes me a, a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, it's biggest race of the year. Let me run an idea past you. Shoot. Do you think this idea would hold water? We built ultra fours to be, kind of catch all the do all we brag that they can crawl rocks they can you could rock crawl with them you can hill climb with them you can do baja with them you desert race with them what would you say to a a road course that also hit desert 
So you go out and do a 30 mile, hundred mile, whatever desert, but you also come back through a, uh, a paved road course, say like a Sonoma tight road course, maybe even has a little NASCAR high bank. I think Jason would be hard to beat. <laughs> right. Ag- ag- agree. <laughs> He'd be in the bullet. Well, I mean, you know, he wanted to do the Bonneville stuff with his car too. Did he ever tell you that? No, I know. No, yeah, we should have. He, he has he has a thing where he wanted to see how fast he could go in his car at Bonneville on salt flats. He doesn't need to go to Bonneville for that. He could go on. To do it. Well, I know you could go over to Emerson and do it too. I mean, I'm just saying. Like, I mean, Bill Baird. Remember when he had that contraption that he was going to put on the back of the of the beast, and when he wanted to go top speed? Do you remember that? No, not at all. You never saw that that whole tail section he built for the back of his car for a fairing. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Cause I mean, a, 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 an ultra four car is already, it's a barn door with, I mean, a 40 inch tire, a 40 inch tire, the, the drag QF, the, the QF of a 40 inch tire is huge, yeah, but at least we don't have a big body, like a trophy truck. Yeah. They're, they're also bad. You know, they, they lift plus you. Yeah. You just need more motor. That's the story to everything. <laughs> Always. <laughs> well, well, no, 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 there does, there does come a time. And, and I've, I've done it at Bonneville where I have plenty of motor, but my drag coefficient is so high that effectively I'm doing a burnout at 275 miles an hour. Like oh, you, that. you, you're pushing, you've effectively like pushed against a wall. You, and it's a wall of air that you yeah. just pulled up against to like, you know, you see like, uh, like burnout that little car was 134 miles an hour. Yeah. That was where it stopped. I mean, it's, that's where and, it stopped. And, and did it buffet a little? You could feel it kind of dance around? Oh, 100%. And it yeah. was blowing the tires off at 134. And it was like, that was how fast that car went on Emerson. Like, it would not go any faster. That's it. Yeah, no. You, you reached the, <laughs> the drag coefficient for that car. Yeah. Oh, man. So, future KOH 2021. You dropped in some Baja in there. And yep. you've been to Baja a lot. You've raced down there a lot. I think not a lot, not a lot, a little bit. I'll give it a little bit for, for, for ultra four guys, not compared. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. certainly if I'm comparing you to, you know, uh, McCachran or, or any of those guys, right. Some you have champions. Th- those guys have been down there. You know, they almost lived down there, you know, half the year, Yeah, you know, the McMillan family, but for ultra four guys, you've been down there a lot compared to ultra four guys. Aspirations go race Baja in your car. I would love to race Baja in my car. It's just for me, like I, know how much time it takes to do it and it's so hard to wrap my head around wanting to go down there and race it and then being able to have my car prepped and not be compromising any of my koh effort because koh being the most important obviously i'd love to go race casey curry and give him a run for the championship and in score I, i i would love to do that um, I'd love to race Dave, you know, when he's racing, you know, obviously people have asked me over the years if, if, if I wanted to help out their programs and, and race, but you know, it's a tough one. It's a tough one because you're taking a lot of time away from your own program, especially when you're coming up into the biggest race of the year in the fall. And as we all know, if your car's not ready coming into the holidays, like you're in a bad way, you know, and like, you're if your car's not ready to roll by Thanksgiving, you're in a bad way, you know, and that's where. You know, you let your guard down and there's going to be another guy like Randy who's going to keep going to the hammers and running his junk and he's going to smoke your ass. So if you want to beat people, you got to bring your freaking A game. And if you're too distracted, you're not going to do it. Fair assessment. Raptors. Love them. We touched them. You got yours. (laughs) How how many miles? What is your goal on miles this year for that thing? 
Um, shoot, I don't know. I uh, I got it with ninety four thousand. I think I have one hundred and thirty on it now. Um, you, since June, have you put a one of those uh, like a like a James Barode tent on it yet or anything? A what? Like one of those tents, like one of those rooftop tents, like an overlanding tent. No. no. Uh-uh. I keep no. th- I keep thinking I want to put that on my pre runner, like over the bed, you know, still below the roof line. So I'm no, not. No, no, if, no. If, a lot of people like that setup, and that's a good setup for sure. I just, for me, like you'll laugh. Like I have my dry bag that I normally would take to Rubicon, like normally, like just clipped into the back of my bed cage, and it's like a bivy sack, my sleeping bag, a pillow, and like I, when I originally started going to Baja, it was with a F two fifty. Um, and then an F-350, 89, 89 Ford before that, or 91 Ford with a TTB in it with cab overs. You know what I mean? And that's what we always would take down there. And uh, I drove a cab over to Alaska and, you know, jump in topes with your pickup in Mexico to the point to where you're blowing the chains off. And then, like, you're in La Paz trying to figure out how to... <laughs> or, or Laredo or wherever at the Home Depot buying lumber and like rebuilding the bottom of your cab over so it doesn't fall off your pickup. Like to me, like I love the light and fast now. And like I, to me, the Raptor, like it's, it's been such an incredible tool, you know, like to be able to leave Reno and know how long it takes me exactly to get to San Felipe. I can go from San Felipe Chevron to Reno and, and tell you exactly how many gallons it is and how many hours it is. And, you know, boom, 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 there you go. And then, you know, all the Northern Nevada stuff that I've got to explore this year out through the, the Black Rock desert, all the way up to the Alford, you know, the Sheldon wilderness area and all of soldiers meadow and everything else in between. It, it's so incredible Northern Nevada, everything all the way down to death Valley, like the whole, all of it. I mean, incredible get you out of your raptor yeah there's a guy here in houston uh not in houston but he's here in texas uh trey paliero he co-drove for like tracy graf and some guys uh trophy truck guy no nah, not tracy graf uh he's co-drove in a bunch of trophy trucks but really great guy but he started texas raptor runs and you know just like a, your standard jeep run you know guys go to the dealership they get their they get the raptor and then he goes out and takes them you know offers them up a property with a track and uh they get to go put their Raptor through the paces. It's been huge. It's really been huge. It's really been cool to see people uh, having their eyes open to what off-road can be. It doesn't have to be mud. It doesn't have to be rock crawling. It can literally be leaf looking at 30 miles an hour. Well, that's, that's the cool part. And like, you know, Ben Bauer, Charlene's dad has always, you know, been such an influential, influential dirt bike guy and the tracks that him and his friends have put in, in the Sierras over the last 20 years. And then the stuff that they passed on to Jason and I, and, you know, honestly, my, my right wrist got pretty tore up and and the thing really just had a, had a hard time keeping up with what I'd like to still do on a dirt bike. So, you know, like Jason and I were joking around that Raptors are the, are the new dirt bike for, for 40 plus year olds. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it's pretty neat, you know, to be able to explore the Sierras, go hot spring exploring, um, and, and just really explore all the best multi-use recreation that exists on the West coast where, you know, in, in the California side of Sierra Nevada is where you're locked in and not able to, to enter into Yosemite and into different areas along 
the Sierra Nevada crest and to hit the Nevada side and hit, you know, the beautiful areas like Mount Patterson and Masonic and to go from, you know, Bodie ghost town all the way back to Urington, back to Dayton. And, you know, just, uh, like God's know, country. Just, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's such a beautiful, uh, beautiful part of the world. And just the Sierras in general, you know, to be able to explore as much of it in the winter on snow machines and skiing and to be able to piece it together, you know, where you can really see like the last year, like I've, I've tried my best to explore and drive as much of the Pony Express and the immigrant trail as possible and, and, and do every lick of it that I could. Man, the last nearly two hours with you have been amazing got all the details on the true story about you and the bear and the tomahawk the background on you skiing and how that came to be i mean i'm still in awe uh, of that did we cover everything uh you wanted to get off your chest i don't know what are we missing <laughs> i'm gonna ask you for a recipe it's a simple recipe shoot a baja fog for everybody what's a baja yep. fog i just take a corona and you put a patron silver floater on top of it fill it up to the top drink it down let the, yes, let the cerveza flow through the through the Patrona. Yeah, that is a good drink. I'm so when to... are you going to start racing again, Wyatt? Let's talk about this because no one's put you in the spot because you've been too busy putting everybody else on the spot. What do you got going on over there? You got Rick Mooneyham building you something? What do you got going? You know, so Easy Rick and, you know, we talk with some regularity. I, you know, I love that guy with a passion. He is in the throes of a decision to move away from Havasu. They're talking, yeah. they're talking about moving to Missouri to the Ozarks. I was going to say like Northern Idaho. <laughs> yeah. No, I, well, I think there's too many Californians there now. I think, and that's, uh-huh. uh, you know, that's nothing makes Rick's skin crawl worse than, a, a conversation about California. So yeah, they, they are looking at maybe some land in M- Southern Missouri, you know, around the Derek West's part of the world, Travis breaks part of the world, you sure. know, Springfield Branson, I, right. Just because what you can buy there, you know, what you can sell out of Havasu for and buy, you can get 20, 40 acres there in southeast Missouri and really have a piece of, you know, a slice of heaven there. So that's kind of what they're looking at. Uh, as far as me and racing, working with, uh, well, he, I mean, he did all the work himself and he just clued me in on it, is uh, Hunter Miller. You know, he's yep. the guy that uh, won the UTV race, King of Hammers UTV race. His brother, Cody, finished 15th in the... Uh, Those are the guys that ran each other over? No, no. Who was the guy that had a car? And they were oh, and throwing rocks. I don't know. No, 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 no. And then it backed up and rolled over one of them. Who was that? Was it those guys? Man, I don't know. Uh, Because there was a there was there was a pair of guys or a team. I'm sorry that uh, in UTV this year that like were out of the car and then like rolled it back over and then it ran ran over him. Yeah, no, 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 no. That was uh. And I'm drawing a blank on his name. Yeah, I want to say they were on the box. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they were. He was second. And this is bad. I'm gonna, uh, you know, sorry. Right. You put me on the spot. I didn't get. Yeah, yeah but yeah, he, he broke his foot. He broke his. He broke his toes. Um, but yeah, Der- not not that guy. Uh, this is uh, Hunter finished first. His brother didn't finish, but he brother then right. raced in 4400 with his UTV and finished 15th. There's some North yeah. Texas guys. There's a big race park just south of Dallas, Fort Worth area, in a town called Midlothian called Texplex. They actually have a really really nice like Raptor style track that you could take your pre runners out on. I've been invited no less than five times every single time it has rained. So we like, like in by rain, I mean like the day before two days. before. Yeah. Like, (laughs) like inches of rain. It's like, well, we don't even, I'm not even worried about putting it on the trailer and driving up there. It's we're not even planning to go because it's rained so much. 
Yeah. There's a UTV series. Well, there's a, you know, a series here in Texas that actually they're opening up a class for uh 12 and up 12 year olds and up uh thousands UTVs naturally aspirated. And so I have this uh, 12 year old son. He is a select baseball player. He lives, breathes, sleeps baseball. That is my hope for my future in racing is that give him a little taste. Yeah. That I can get him into a thousand in a UTV and I can get in the right seat and live vicariously through him. That'd be cool. That's, that's right. That's super cool. You brought up the, uh, the vision thing in qualifying and that's ultimately what made me shelve it and hang, hang up the helmet a few years ago. And as it turned out, I ended up finding out I'm a diabetic and, the, my vision issues were part of that, and that was that was the deal. I was had lost the edge on reading the tops of whoops at 130 at the mint. Yeah, and when I went back and we we saw a section of video on like World of X Games, and it was in car from Rob Mack going down a power line road at the the mint, and he was running like 105 to 108. Good clip. Yeah, miles. You know, the voice of Hammertown over there, Miles Hauskiss and I, we were running 134 on that section. And I didn't finish that race. But what I can tell you is You're about 130 whoops in there. Yeah, we we we, we, we were we were rolling. And, and and the thing was the, the car the car felt the car felt great. It never felt better. I mean, I wasn't worried about it, but then when you you see when somebody like Rob Mack is rolling that, I started thinking about really reflecting on my vision. And it came down to my vision. And going, yep. man, I am clearly misreading something a little bit. And like you said, I don't want to kill somebody. I don't want to kill or hurt or injure my co-driver. Yep. And I knew I was having vision issues. And here's the thing. Some days I'm 2020 or 2010. And then other days I, I can't read a stop sign from sitting at the crosswalk. That's And it's not really my ability to regulate uh, via the, the drugs I haven't ever been able to get it to a point where it's fully under control. And if I could get to the point where I was under control and the meds were under control of my blood sugars and my vision was never a blurry spiky issue, I would be back in a car tomorrow. That would be no question in my mind. It might be a single seater just so I didn't take somebody with me, but I've not been able to control it. And I'm, I'm going on, you know, about five years of, of really recognizing that I have this, uh, this issue uh, from the diabetes. Oh, the vision issue is my only symptom. I have no other complications. It's just the vision, but the vision is enough to, well, here it is. This is like the, the the thing. If you can't do it, you teach. Well, here it is. This is how the talent tank came to be. You guys are, you know, my people, my community, my friends, my structure, my rock. And I, I feel like I'm too old to go make new friends. So, (laughs) To hang up the race car and then still stay involved. And the best way I know involved is continue to tell the story of the stories of my friends, yeah. tell the stories of my acquaintances, tell the stories of our sport, tell the stories of our community, what we do for each other, how we do it for each other and why we love it or have fallen in love with it. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Why? Like the first time I raced Vegas Torino with my own car, like Yoder and Sheer were my pit crew. 
<laughs> and they were like, just get to us and we'll sort it out. I mean, we're literally like last on race course with broken ring and pinion bolts in the rear, fixed them, got to them finally, and then worked our way all back to eighth. You know, like that's the stuff that you just, that's the stuff that you just need in your life, you know, to be able to, even if you're not racing, go down and help other people out. Like going down for the thousand last year, like that was awesome to be able to be there for my friends, you know, and like, that's what's, uh, that's what makes it neat. And if you can't race, you know? Yeah. No, I, I wish I'd figured this portion of it out. Like the not always feeling like I had to do it myself. I wish I'd figured that out in my twenties and in my thirties. It, it's taken me. I don't think my- it happens then though. I don't think it happens then. Not for me, because I think everybody's so jammed up and wanting to prove that you can be the man or prove that you can do it or be competitive that you're not mature enough yet to actually like, I mean, that's the thing about guiding and skiing. Like I don't have to ski the gnarliest stuff anymore. I can take people out and take them on just super fun, easy runs. And like they have an absolute blast and I'm not all jammed up because I'm not on the gnarliest stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's what makes it great because you're stoked to show other people what's out there and let them challenge themselves. And then you get to, you know, see how they can be successful and see what goes on in their head and their eyes and their facial expressions and see how happy they are. And you're like, man, I did that. You know, meeting people's expectations. Like how cool is that? Right. Well, man, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Tom. Next time though, I will schedule, I don't know if I need to schedule it through you or through an agent, but I will set up a, an interview with your mustache. <laughs> Just let me know when he's back. And cause there's a lot of people that are, uh, sitting around waiting for the, the Tom Way's mustache interview. Just what he has to say, you know, alternate ego, Tom, thank you for coming on. I so, I so value it. Thanks for agreeing. It was a great one. Oh yeah. All right. We are out. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make, as usual. I really have to thank my uh, my three partners on this. Custom Splice, those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at uh, customsplice.com. Give them a call. Machining, oh my gosh. Branding Machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If If you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They're a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company, they're in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this uh, this venture and this project and everything, give them, give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with springs. And then the parent company, Mass Motorsports Engines, Man, they have uh, they have engines unlocked, hand built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.